Happy Sabbath. It is a true joy to be with you this morning. And yes, I'm down here because I feel caged up there. I feel so far from you. So it doesn't offend anyone if I preach from down here. Is that okay? Is that all right? I've got permission. It's true. I met your pastor back in 2001 to be specific. It was the summer of 2001 in Atlanta. We called it Hotlanda. Hotlanta, Georgia. Remember that, John? Yeah, we worked the entire summer in Atlanta leading up to a large evangelistic series with someone you may have heard of, David Ashrick. Some of you? Yeah, well, we, uh, we worked for, a, for that evangelistic series over there, and there was a group of, I don't know, there was probably 40 young people, another dozen Bible workers, David Asher. It was a large effort out there at Georgia Tech University, and that was, uh, what an experience. That was our first time, right, John? Yeah, and then I met up with John when he was still doing his, uh, his he was in undergrad at Southern. He was... Uh, he was a student pastoring somewhere in Chattanooga. I don't think you remember when I visited you, you there at that church. Yeah, that was, that was a long time ago as well. We, uh, we've been in ministry a long time. That doesn't make us an expert. That just, re- that just affirms that we need more of Jesus every day. Uh, I love Jesus. By the way, it's a privilege to be part of the Armona. How many of you were blessed with Armona's participation? Yeah. That just goes to show that good quality Adventist Christian education is worth every penny. Amen. It really is. And I'm thankful for Michael Lee and for the work. He just stepped in there. He wasn't the choir director, but did he do a wonderful job? Yes. Everything that Michael does is a wonderful, wonderful work. And I'm grateful to work alongside him at the conference office and alongside your pastor. Last year, we found ourselves... Uh, just floating in the Dead Sea. We enjoyed uh, the Holy Land trip together and, along with other pastors last year, and we're looking forward to our next trip in a couple more years. Uh, we're still determining where that's going to be. It looks like it may be the seven churches, which interests me quite a bit. Uh, Greece. Uh, but uh, that's not the message proper this morning. It's true, we are excited and looking forward to spending nearly a month with you. How long? Oh yeah, you're stuck with me for quite a long time. No, actually, we, we won't keep you here every single night. We're, we're starting April 17th and we're going all the way through May 9th, primarily weekends, uh, so that uh, you're able to, to share the good news through the week with your friends and family and co-workers, and on the weekends, just have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this place. It will be a wonderful experience, but this morning, we just want to get acquainted with each other, and, and my deep desire this morning is for each of us to know the love of God in a very, very, very real and practical way. Would that interest you? Yeah? This morning, we need God's presence. We need his spirit. We need his guidance to speak to us. Would you please bow your heads as we pray? Loving Father, this morning, we pause from the 
routines of the week. We've come apart and stepped aside and placed our worries, our cares, our perplexities, our challenges. We place those to the side. And this morning we come before you with thanksgiving. But we come with open hearts, desperate for hope, longing for something better. While the world is perplexed by numerous assaults and assailments, we come to you in this place of quiet rest. And we beseech you to speak to our hearts this morning and show us marvelous things from your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible. Do you have your Bible? iPhone, Android. If you have an Android, we don't care to know. Um, Okay, wonderful. Android still has Bibles. All right. If you have an iPhone, that's great, as long as it's not my phone, but just take your tablet, your Bible, and turn to 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and I invite you to look very closely at the very first word of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, I'm reading from the King James, you can, I was really drawn to NASB, the New American Standard, I'm kind of loving studying the NASB now more and more, but nonetheless, just King James popped up. How many of you are there? Let me hear you say amen. amen. All right, wonderful. Now, when you look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, what is the very first word there? Behold. behold. Now, what does John mean by calling our attention to behold? Does he mean just casually glance? Just, you know, uh, uh, just a quick peek? Or does he mean something else? Behold implies intent. It's a, it's, it's, it's an action of deliberate intention. And it calls us to do something. L listen to what he says. Behold what manner of what, everyone? Love the Father has bestowed upon who? Us. Pause. How often do you stop to behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us? We hear of it. We even say it, we believe it, but do we understand it? Do we comprehend in practical ways, in practical terms, do we understand what it means? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, what everyone? Sons of who? Of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Now look, notice verse 2. Beloved, when? Now. Amen. Now, at this very moment in time and place. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Oh, yeah. 
and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. I know, you look at me and you're like, this guy? This woman? Sons of God? I know it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him, how? As he is. Here's the beauty. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. And every man, woman, and child. Every man, woman, and child that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. By realizing what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you, by recognizing that you are not just some kind of uh, being that happened to come to existence because of a night of passion between two called primarily your parent, you are not here by accident. I know that evolution, and, and, and I know that, that secular and atheist views, I know that we're bombarded by all kinds of, of, of theories that try to explain our existence and our purpose in life. But let me tell you something. God's Word reveals to us that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We were made in the image of God Himself after His likeness. We aren't some cosmic accident billions of years ago. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We often doubt that because we go through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes, as so eloquently and so fittingly present, portrayed through that last hymn of meditation from the Armona Union Academy, but sometimes we feel like we're the only feet, the only footprints in the sand, and we don't recognize it's Jesus carrying us through. Can you recall your journey with Jesus? And as you look back, can you recall, can you, can you see how he, sometimes he didn't, carry us through. He had to lift us high. He had to fly us through because they were so dangerous. They were so perilous. The reality is we are not here by accident. We were created in his image after his likeness with a purpose to give him glory. And I know that because of sin, we often forget it. Young person, I understand. There's a lot of things pulling for your attention. There's a lot of things trying to say, look at me, think of me, uh, reach for me, strive, uh, do whatever, sacrifice for me. But this morning, I want you to realize that there is nothing better. There's no one greater. There's nothing more fulfilling than knowing you are a son, a daughter of the Most High God. And I hope that this morning's message will give you a tangible, practical, realistic view of what that looks like. Would you like to see that? In order for us to do that, we have to go to the Old Testament gospel of Samuel. Second Samuel. You're like, gospel? Yeah, watch. You're going to see it. Second Samuel, chapter 9. We're going to be here the, the, the majority of our time in, in, in God's Word. We're in 2 Samuel 
chapter 9. Uh, what chapter? Nine. Which division of Samuel? Nine. Very well. We're going to begin right there in verse 1. Now listen to this story, and I want you to pay attention to the key figures, to the key people in this story. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, And David said, Is there not any that is left of the house of who? Saul, that I might show him what? Kindness for whose sake? For Jonathan's sake. Now pause. We find key figures. First, we find King David. King David wakes up one morning and he is troubled. He is, he is perplexed because he realizes after many years, he hasn't fulfilled a promise that he made to his best friend. Who was David's best friend? Jonathan. See, before David and Jonathan split up, before they went their separate ways, before Je David became a fugitive because Saul wanted to kill him, he and Jonathan had an encounter. I think it's somewhere around 1 Samuel 20 where they have this encounter. Now, by this time, Jonathan recognized that God had rejected his father Saul as king of Israel. He also accepted God's will in placing David as the next heir to the throne of Israel. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. Saul is king. So that means that the next person in line to sit on the throne of Israel would be who? Jonathan. Jonathan accepted God's will. Realize that David was who God had now elected, chosen to be the next king of Israel. He, he submitted to God's will, even though it deprived him of being king. Now that could be a whole sermon, a whole uh, other time, and maybe perhaps I'll come and do that at some other time. That's not the point, though, here today. Today here, Jonathan wakes up because back in 1 John 20, he, Jonathan made David swear a promise. He says, listen, when you are king, when you are firmly seated on the throne of Israel, please show my family kindness. Have mercy on my family. And David made that commitment. Now, years later, David is now on the throne. Many years later. You'll see just about approximately how many years. Now David wakes up and he's like, I haven't fulfilled the commitment I made with my best friend. And so he starts to investigate. Is there anyone, anyone that I might show kindness to fulfill the promise I made to my best friend? Now, verse 2. Are you with me? Are you with me? Yes. All right. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. All right, Ziba, and when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Are you Ziba? And he answered, Your servant is he. Verse 3, and the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I might show them the kindness, but not for Jonathan's sake. This time he says something different. The kindness of what? of God. Is there a difference between verse 1 and verse 3? Do you see the difference? One of them, David says, kindness for Jonathan's sake. But in verse 3, 
he adds something new. The kindness of God. Now that, I want to see. I want to see what the kindness of God looks like. I want to experience that. I want to see how this story plays out because you will find yourself in here. And Ziba, continuing, and Ziba said unto the king, Oh, yeah, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. Now, Jonathan is sitting on his throne. He wakes up years later remembering that he hadn't fulfilled the promise he made to his best friend Jonathan. And now, all of a sudden, years later, he discovers that his best friend Jonathan, before he died, had a son. How do you think David felt at this very moment? Huh? Excited, right? Thrilled. What do you think he wants to do? Huh? Find him. Where is he? Notice verse 4. Notice verse 4. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now we have his coordinates. We've got his address. Let's pop that in the GPS and go and get him. Now, before we do, I want to give you a little background to who this son of Jonathan is. You've got your finger there in, John, in 2 Samuel 9. Keep your finger right there. Go to 2 Samuel 4. 2 Samuel 4. 2 Samuel 4. And notice what it says there in verse 4. 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4. Are you there? Now, notice... What God's word says. It says this. Oh, I'm in the wrong verse. So here we go. Now, this is around the time Jonathan and Saul are in battle against the Philistines. So it says here. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was what? Lame of his feet. He was how old? Five years old, when the, when the tidings, that's news, came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. Now notice. And, as, and it came to pass that as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was, what everyone? Mephibosheth. Now, I want you to think about this. He's only five years old. His father and his grandfather are in the battle against the Philistines there in the valley of Jezreel. They've been there for quite some time. The boy's only five years old. His father probably hadn't, hasn't spent that much time. I mean, they're having to conquer and fight against so many enemies of God's people. But the, the, in that battle, Jonathan dies. In that battle, Saul dies, falls on his own sword. Now I want you to think about this when the news comes back to the camp of the Israelites. King Saul has been, is dead. Well, the next one that is to sit on the throne is who? Jonathan. But there's a problem. Jonathan also is dead. So now, who sits on the throne? 
Mephibosheth, but there's another problem. He's only five years old. He can't defend himself. He can't protect himself. And so his babysitter is freaking out. She is scared and terrified because she knows that the Philistines are going to come and they're going to kill him. So she takes him. And as she's fleeing, as she's running, as she's trying to save his life, he falls. Just imagine what kind of fall that must have been for that boy, five years old, to never walk again. The rest of his life is spent dragging, pulling, uh, pulling themselves. I mean, it's not like we have ADA or, or Americans with Disabilities Act that they have to have, you know, ramps in public places and they have to have it paved and they have to have all these, you know, elevators. And No, uh, no, 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 no. We're talking thousands of years ago. I don't think they had wheelchairs or they weren't as uh, accessible. Life was, was, was miserable. For a lame person. And from the age of five, that boy is constantly reminded, I was destined to be king. But because of my royal blood, I had to flee. And for the rest of my life, for the rest of his life, He's doing everything possible to escape his identity because he thinks the moment that I am discovered, they're going to what? Kill me. They're going to kill him. Now we go back to 2 Samuel 9. Now look at what happens when David finally uh, discovers who he is. David sends for him. Sends for him over there in Makir's house, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar is like Sin City. It was a low-down, grimy, just a dirty, sinful, wicked place. It was not the kind of place you choose to move to. This is where Mephibosheth now finds himself. And so... Uh, verse 4, 2 Samuel 9, now going back to verse 4. And the king said unto him, where is he? And he tells him where he is. Makir's house there in Lodabar. Now jump down to verse 5. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now I like that word fetched. How would you like to be fetched? That's why I like that. Sometimes I really like the King James. It really gives, gives you know, it didn't just, he didn't just send for him. He fetched him. Now, I presume that King David sent some soldiers with the simple command, here is a name, here is an address, bring him to me right away. That's all the instructions were. And so I just want you to imagine you being Mephibosheth, and you're sitting outside of, in the porch of Makir's house, and you guys are drinking some, you know, wine, new wine, grape juice, okay? Or, or pomegranate juice, whatever, you know, and, and they're sitting there, and they're talking, and all of a sudden, they start 
They, they, they hear the rumble of approaching horses. They see the smoke rising in the horizon. And as they're wondering, what's going on? Are you expecting company, Makir? And Makir's like, no, Mephi, I'm not expecting anyone. But as they're looking there, they see the horses. They're coming closer. And now they're, they're more clearly in view. And it doesn't take Mephibosheth very long to realize those are soldiers coming straight for your house. How do you think Mephibosheth feels? Oh, he's fearful, terrified. He is, uh, what? Has anyone snitched on me? Who's, who's, uh, I, and he is fearful, but here's the problem. He's lame. He cannot walk. He cannot run. He cannot hide. He's helpless. And so he's, he's frantic. Makir's trying to calm him down. Don't worry, Mephi. I don't know. Maybe they're lost. Maybe they need some water. I'll get rid of them. Hey, uh, and he sends for, for them to take Mephibosheth inside. He says, just go inside. You be quiet. I'll get rid of them. But Mephibosheth is inside while the soldiers come to Makir. Is this Makir? Are you Makir? Yes, yes, I am. How can I help you? We're here on orders from King David. Really? What are the orders? We have reason to believe that you, are, that you are hosting a man by the name of Mephibosheth. We're here. The king wants to see him right away. Mephibosheth is inside, probably hears those words, and he thinks, that's it. I'm going to die. It's not like he can run out the back door. It's not like he can put, a, put, put up a fight. He's helpless. And he's hopeless. The soldiers come in. One grabs him on one side. One grabs him on the other. And they put a hood over his head as the custom in that kind of place, uh, that part of the world would be at that time. They put a hood. They put him in some carriage. Lock him up. And they now make their way back to Jerusalem. They don't tell Mephibosheth, hey, the king wants to show you kindness. You'll see that. It's very clear. They just apprehended him, he is now in custody, and he's being extradited back down, he thinks, to the execution chamber. The whole ride, he is recounting all of the pain he's experienced in his life. And he's crying out to God, because it isn't fair. He's five years old, has no, he had no, he had nothing to do with who, what family he was born into. He had nothing to do, it was not his choice to be an heir to the throne of Israel. Why does he have this horrible and painful fate? They arrive somewhere, he doesn't know where he's at, the soldiers open the Carth, they grab him and now they're carrying him. He hears as they approach large doors and as the doors open in front of them and shut behind, he, he, he can tell as the soldiers are walking through different passageways up and down and over and, and under and finally they get to a large chamber. He can hear the footsteps of the sandal of the soldiers as it, as it echoes through the high vaulted ceilings. And he doesn't realize where he's at, but they come and they place him right beneath, right below David's throne. And they put him down on his hands and feet and they take off the hood. And there he finds himself before the throne 
of King David, and he thinks, I'm here to die. We pick it up in verse 6. 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And he falls on his face because could you look at the face of he who is potentially going to call for your execution? Could you do that? He falls on his face, helpless, not being able to run, not being able to escape, not being able to plea for mercy. All he does is fall, and he's probably there shaking and crying and fearful. And as he is there, maybe he's thinking in his mind, there may be a, a, a mixed identity. I may, there may be a way for me to get out of this still. They may not know who I really am. This, the king might be confused. And as he's thinking there, he hears King David say to him, Mephibosheth, call him by name. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. Mephibosheth is not prepared for what will happen next. He has no clue. He thinks he's there to die. He thinks these are the last moments of life. Verse 7 is powerful. Verse 7, David as he's sitting on his throne looking down at his best friend's son, lame, probably thin, unwashed, unkept, abandoned for years, a fugitive. David wants to come down, wants to embrace him, wants to tell him how much he misses his father and how close they were, but he's the king. He has to keep his composure and and. and all David can do is know. David knows what's going through Mephibosheth's mind. Therefore, verse 7, David said unto him, What? Fear not. Don't cry. Don't be afraid. You see, oftentimes when we have an encounter with God, oftentimes when we come before Him, we fear that He is there to punish us. Many do. That God just wants to take your joy, wants to take your, your life, and wants to take your, your freedom. Mephibosheth fears the king's wrath. And David tells him, fear not. Notice, for I will show, surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I'm thinking, David, uh, jo Mephibosheth is like, er, 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 er. wait a minute. How do you and my father know each other? See, I, I am convinced Mephibosheth had no idea that Jonathan and David were the best of friends. If not, the moment that he recognizes he's in the king's palace and that's King David, he would be like, hey, I'm Jonathan's son. Wouldn't he have? He doesn't. He falls on his face. In fact, look, it continues. He'll, he'll, he'll leave. Not only does David say, fear not, for I will show you kindness for your father's sake, but notice, and will restore thee, how many? 
all the lands of Saul, your father. Oh, and if that's not enough, and you shall eat bread, where? At my table, how often? I, I mean, come on. Are you, are, are you picking up what the Lord is throwing down? I mean, here, Mephibosheth is, is, is a vagabond. He's going from house to house. He just found himself in Makir's house at that moment. Doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Doesn't have any land to claim for himself. And in a matter of moments, he went from a fugitive trying to escape his life to having lands and, and, and you'll see even more, and an open table at the king's banquet table. I mean, you, you know what Mephibosheth is thinking? Do you, you have any clue what he's thinking at this moment? Well, you don't have to wonder. It's right here. Look at, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that you should look upon such a what, everyone? Dead dog as I am. What did he think of himself? I mean, how do you like that for self-esteem? He needs some Joel Olstein therapy. <laughs> I mean, he, he uh, let, me, let me translate for someone that might still be confused. Let me tell you what he meant. Look, King, if you're going to kill me, get it over with. Don't toy with me. I feel like, 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 like Tom and Jerry, you know, the mouse and the, and, and the cat. You're just toying with me. Kill it. I mean, just, it's like a band-aid. Rip it off. He's thinking you're, you're joking. You're kidding. This can't be true. I mean, it's bad enough when you consider yourself a dog. But he wasn't just a dog. He considered himself a dead dog. I find it interesting that David doesn't even acknowledge his esteem. David doesn't even acknowledge his words. It's almost like the prodigal son there in Luke 15. Do you remember when the prodigal son rehearses his speech on his way home? Oh, Father, I, uh, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just take me as one of your hired servants. The son was content to be a servant now, but the father wouldn't have it, wouldn't even hear of it. Here, King David doesn't even acknowledge that Mephibosheth is a dead dog. He, in fact, King David directs his intention and calls Ziba. Look at verse 9. He calls Ziba, Saul's servant, and notice what happens. And said unto him, I have given unto thy, unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. That's a lot of land, people. I mean, acres upon, I mean, anyways. Verse 10. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants will till the land for him. Uh, and, uh, and you shall bring in all the fruits that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, Thy master's son shall eat bread always, where? At my table. Now, now, how many times does David say that? That's twice. Now, now, when the king says something once, is it important? What about when he says it twice? Very important. Check this out. 
Now, Ziba had how many sons? 15 sons. And how many servants? What's the total? 35 plus Ziba? 36. Listen, Mephibosheth went from having nothing to having 36 servants so that he would always have his chana masala, his tamales, his fajitas, his tortillas, his spaghetti, his minestrone, his, you know, baba ganoush, his couscous and falafels and all the other stuff. Aren't you hungry already? Hmm. <laughs> In a fraction of a moment, Mephibosheth's life radically changed. Now notice, I got to finish. I know, I hear the stomach. Sorry, that was mine. <laughs> Verse 11. Then Ziba uh, said unto the king, according to all that my king, uh, I'm sorry, my lord the king has said unto his servant, so shall his servant do. And as Mephibosheth is there, I mean Ziba is there uh, trying to get some kind of points with the king, the king interrupts him. Notice, the king interrupts Ziba and says, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as what, everyone? As one of the what? How many times is that now? Three times the king affirms Mephibosheth. And the last time he places him with equal status with his own children. Absalom, Dina, uh, Solomon, uh, I don't, I don't uh, what was uh, his other son's name? Absalom man. Oh, come huh? Amnon. Amnon. Uh, Amnon. Sorry, I, I have to think in Spanish and translate to English. <laughs> Three times the king affirms him. You may have lived in Makir's house. You may have been running thinking that you needed to escape your true identity. You feared who you were because you thought that all I wanted to do was to take your life. But all I truly wanted to do was show you the kindness of God. Verse 12. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. What a story. Not a parable. This is an experience that God was sure to record so that today you can realize what manner of, of love he has lavished on each one of us. You see, you are not just an accident. God purposed you. 
He thought of you. He formed you in the bell in your mother's belly. You are loved by the Almighty God. Even though today we find ourselves in Lodabar, even though we are faced by challenges and, and, and threats and perplexities, even though hate crimes are on the incredible rise around the world and here in America, even though the threat of disease and the coronavirus and other viruses that are still in the shadows, even though the threat of war, even though the, the, the threat of, of economic uh, collapse, even though all these things threaten our existence, let me tell you, one day the king will call for us. One day the king will come down and have us rescued. One day we will be brought before his throne. One day we will stand. I will say one day we will fall to our face. Like that, that wonderful uh, song, contemporary song, I can hardly imagine what it will be like. Now, we'll, what will you do? when Jesus finally usher, ushers you into his presence. Friends, there are key figures in this story. And they represent key individuals that had very significant roles. One is King David. Who does King David represent in this story? He is the king. Who, does, uh, who, who has all authority? Who is King David represented here? God. Let me ask you another question. Jonathan. Who is Jonathan? Who is the king's son that gave his life so that his son Mephibosheth could be received as one of the sons of the king? Who does Jonathan represent? Jesus. Who does Ziba represent? Ziba, in many regards, Ziba is that link between heaven and earth. Ziba was that instrument God used to connect Mephibosheth to the king. Rather, let me ask you this. Who is Mephibosheth? Who is running, who has run for years from God, thinking that God wants to take their joy away. God wants to take your life and make it so miserable because when you give your heart to Jesus, oh man, especially Adventists, now you have to eat rubber food. Sorry, tofu, I'm sorry. I remember the first time I had tofu, it was a call in a place called Black Hills Mission College of Evangelism in middle of nowhere, South Dakota. Uh, that's exactly the name of the town, middle of nowhere, so, no, Hermosa, South, South Dakota. I remember I was there, and it was one of the first lunches, and I sit there, and I put some food in my mouth, and my mouth goes, no, 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 no. Like, what is that? Am I eating a basketball or something? No, that's tofu. Now I love it. Now I can't, uh, I can't uh, imagine being without it. It's the modern manner. <laughs> they can make anything with tofu. It's true. It's true. They even... Anyways, when we come to Jesus, some are led to believe that your life becomes a dull, boring, uh, monotonous life of servitude and and, and, and slavery. You, and people don't realize 
that a life of sin is much more a life of slavery than any other. I lived that life for many, many, many years. And God had to go to Lodabar. I was even worse than Lodabar. I wasn't in Makir's house. I was in the gutter. And God reached me where I was there. And today, he's called me to travel far and wide to share the gospel in a much more relevant and real way. Let me, uh, let me tell you, God is real. He is not just someone we pray to. He is someone we walk with. God is real. Let me tell you something. He is not someone that we think of. He is someone that thinks of us. He loves us so much. Mephibosheth, for me, represents that man that stares at me in the mirror every morning. When I come each morning to existence, when I start to think who I am and where I've come from, and I start to wonder, where am I going? This morning, Jesus wants you to know that Even though you may have found yourself in Makir's house for whatever reason, this morning he wants you to know that he loves you. And he's willing to give you more than you can ever ask for or think. This morning I know that there is someone here who can identify with Mephibosheth. This morning there's someone here who God has been calling and God's been working on. This morning Jesus has come before you and he invites you to take hold of his hand and believe. One day, he will bestow unto you all the lands. He will give you access and a place at his table. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. This morning, is there someone who wants to stand to your feet and say, Father, I am Mephibosheth. I have been living my life trying to escape reality. But from this moment forth, I want to live trusting, believing 
living for Jesus. If this morning you want to make that recommitment to Jesus, I invite you to join me as we sing. All to Jesus I Sing it like you mean. to make a greater and a more meaningful commitment to Jesus, I invite you, if you want special prayer, approach the throne of grace this morning. I want to ask Pastor John if he can have this very special prayer of dedication for all of us. But if there's someone this morning that feels God's call and wants to make a new and a renewed commitment to him, I invite you to come as we sing. All to Jesus I surrender humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken take me Jesus Take me now. I surrender. I surrender. here if there's someone that this morning wants to also recommit to Jesus you can come Pastor John prays. I pray that we will all pray, Lord, help us 
save us. We don't want to dwell in Lodabar anymore. One day very soon, Jesus will invite us to that banquet table. And he himself will serve us. He will gird himself. Do you want to be ready for that day? Pastor John. Loving Heavenly Father, we've been reminded this morning that you are love. We've beheld it. We've considered it. And our hearts have responded this morning saying, yes, Jesus. Yes, Father. Yes, Holy Spirit. We are thankful for your love and we want to respond to your invitation of love. Thank you for stories like Mephibosheth. Thank you for reminding us that we can come to you with all of our junk, with all of our problems, with our disabilities, our issues, and you, you accept us as we are. You love us before we're even capable of loving you. And so, Lord, in our hearts we've responded. Uh, on our feet we've stood, and, and some of us have even come forward saying, Lord, I want to recommit myself to you. Lord, we're not a, a perfect people. We're not a church of saints. We're a hospital for sinners. And today we stand and we come forward and in our hearts we say, yes, Jesus, we are sinners, but we're so grateful for your grace. We're so thankful for your Holy Spirit and we're thankful for your promise of love, for forgiveness right now and the future hope and reality of eternal life in the life to come. We look forward to seeing you someday, Lord. But in the meantime, we want to live for you. And we want others to know how good you are. So give us opportunities. And may we proclaim your goodness, your love, and grace. Today, tomorrow, this week, until you return. In Jesus' name, let all God's people say, Amen. Amen.